Well, at this point, I'd like to introduce you to Mark Birch. He's been here before, and we're so glad that he's back. He uh, works with C2C Canada, which is a church planting network that plants churches all over Canada and even into the States, and just an awesome work that they're doing there. And we're just so glad to have Mark with us this morning, continuing our series. And I'd love to just pray for him as well as he, as he begins. So let me pray for you, Mark. So God, I just pray that you bless your servant as he speaks your word this morning. Father, thank you for the privilege it is of having him here, and I just pray that you'd use his gifts that you've given him uh, to bless your people here this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. 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 Well, it's a privilege to be with you, and I I seem to get this chance about once every year I get invited to Willingdon Church. I don't know why they keep inviting me back, but anyway, uh, Ray emailed earlier in the spring and said, hey, we're going to be in Exodus, and I got a couple weeks I'm going to need filled, so I'm going to be here for two weeks, and I was encouraged and excited about that because Exodus is such an amazing... uh, book, and then uh, I didn't have a text at the beginning, and then he emailed me my text, and uh, I thought, shoot, thanks for going on vacation, Ray. I get the plagues. This is going to be wonderful. So I'll just tell you, it's a challenging text, chapter 7 through 11, the next five chapters, and we're going to cover them in two weeks. This week, just the first introduction to it, and Pharaoh and the warning against hard-heartedness. The, t- the series is called Mighty to Save, which is a great uh, summary statement for the book. And today's text in particular is actually a very sober text, so I want to tell you that right up front. Uh, We live in an era of warnings, and we get used to them. They're they're with us every day, and sometimes we don't take them seriously. They're everywhere, warning labels, symbols, sounds, buzzers, lights, and bells. Uh, You don't put on your seatbelt, and a bell goes off in the car. You leave the lights on, and a bell goes off in the car, and they just keep improving these things. We've got lane departure warnings, blind spot monitoring systems, forward collision, and if you can't brake yourself for that car that's ahead of you, the car will actually brake for you. Uh, So soon we won't be driving at all. You know this. Uh, Some of them are good and necessary and wonderful. We're thankful that there are early earthquake warning detection systems, particularly the part of the world that we live in. We wonder about that major earthquake that they keep predicting, and we're thankful, at least we're hopeful, that the early warning systems will work and that we'll have some notice uh, as compared to some things that have happened in other parts of the world. Some warnings are very graphic. Uh, I don't know how many of you have picked up a pack of cigarettes lately, but if you've seen the pictures on a cigarette package of the cancerous tumors, and it's like they take the pictures of the, the grossest tumors they can find, and I suppose they're supposed to warn us, if you really want to kill yourself by smoking these things, go ahead, but here's what's going to happen. And uh, I don't think it's working, but anyway, they put them on there. Uh, some warnings seem unnecessary. Uh, Some of them even are dumb or stupid, and you wonder, are they stupid labels for stupid people? I don't know. Uh, Maybe you've seen some like this. I I like this one about ironing. Uh, If you're going to iron, don't iron with clothes on your body. Apparently, that's a tag on an iron. I love this one, the high-voltage fence. Uh, It's going to kill you, but there's still a fine at at the end of that. Uh, Beware of the dog and don't trust the cat either. That's a good one. And those of you who own boats or or who are going to be out on the lakes this summer or on the ocean, you need to know this. That's important to remember. And when you're doing the ironing, maybe you should remind yourself this. I've never ever seen that label, but that's crazy. Don't swallow. Don't swallow the hanger. This next one is quite funny. Australia, a little town called Brankston. They are a small town. They don't have a hospital, so they welcome careful drivers... We have two cemeteries and no hospital. (laughs) 
So those warnings uh, are probably good and necessary. Our text is a warning, but unlike those, it is a very serious and sober text, and it calls us to reflect on our own lives. And so let's just pray together. Lord Jesus, I would ask that as we enter into a, a challenging passage of Scripture that you would open our hearts and minds. Pray for men and women in this room that you have already been calling to yourself. You've been working in their lives. They know it. You've been calling them. Uh, They may be responding or they may be resisting, but Lord, we ask that today that they would respond to your call. Lord, we also know that there is an enemy who would disrupt this service, and so Lord, we speak against Satan and all of his minions, and we do so in the authority that we have in Jesus Christ and the resurrected Christ, that Satan, you have no authority in this room, and we quiet you and we put you at the foot of the cross so that we can hear from God in his word. So, Lord, visit us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The overarching theme is God's mighty hand to deliver his people. Uh, The salvation of our God, his provision of a deliverer, how God sees and hears and responds to the cry of an oppressed people. It's the story of the book of Exodus, and it is one of the most compelling stories in all of the Bible. It has been set to music, it has been set to films, it has been set to poetry, How through the strength of our God, people are called from bondage to freedom, from slavery into worship, from captivity to liberty. And freedom, deliverance, salvation, as you know, is the theme of the scriptures. It is the theme of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus began his ministry in Luke, he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah 61 where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was Jesus' modus operandi. Freedom, deliverance, salvation is the overarching theme of the Bible. You know this. Life as we see it and know it in the here and now is not life as God intended it to be. Genesis 1 and 2, life was perfect. Revelation 21 and 22, life will again be perfect. Everything in between is God's redemption story of trying to gain back the original glory of his creation and the glory of humanity. It is the meta narrative, the theme of the Bible. And these next two weeks, we're going to look at the length to which God would go to set his people free and how a hard-hearted leader gets a severe lesson as he tries to resist the mighty hand of God. It's a very serious topic. Will we look at the warning that is woven through this text and the questions it raises? And so I need to ask these questions. How long can you resist the living God? And specifically, I would ask each of you, have you been running from God? Have you been arguing with God? Have you been justifying in your mind all your skepticism and hard-heartedness and why you can just ignore him for a little while longer? And let me just run to the end of the message. By the time we finish this up at about one o'clock, you'll need to know where we're headed There are some in this room that need to do some business with God, and you know that he has been calling you to himself. He may be inviting you to step into some new ministry opportunity or a challenge that he has opened ahead of you. He may be asking you to surrender some area of your life to his 100% control. He may be asking you to end a relationship that you know is not honoring to him. 
There may be a fear or a temptation or a struggle that he wants you to release into his hands. He may be calling you to himself for the very first time, but whatever the reason, you have been resisting God's hand and his voice and his call on your life, you have a hard heart. Or you have an apathetic spirit, which I think may be worse than a hard heart. Just a casual disinterest in the things of God. So let me jump to the chase. The scripture is so very clear that the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every man and woman and boy and girl in this room will one day bow before the king. And he will be exalted over the nations and he will be exalted over every one of our lives. The only question is, will he be exalted as your savior or will he be exalted as your judge? You see, Jesus quoted from Isaiah 61, but he stopped midway through the sentence and he said, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and ended as though there were a period there, but in the original text, there's no period there. The year of the Lord's favor, Isaiah goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. And you say, why did Jesus stop midway through the sentence? It's the difference between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. In the first coming, he comes humble as a servant, riding on the back of a donkey, giving grace and mercy. In his second coming, he comes riding on a white stallion in judgment with a sword coming out of his mouth. Revelation 19 paints the picture. The day of vengeance is coming, and 2 Corinthians says, all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. We will all stand before God. God speaks through Isaiah, and the second half in particular, Isaiah 40 and onward, so much about his son, Jesus Christ, and turning to his people with outstretched hands of love as the only Savior. And it says in Isaiah 45, turn to me, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself, I've sworn from my mouth has gone out righteousness, a word that will not return to me, every knee shall bow." Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. You can stand against God for a while, but the day will come when your knee will bow. And so today the scriptures are going to call us to a decision. Because the story that we're looking at implicates every one of us in the room. And the question is this, have I resisted? Am I resisting? the gracious call of God on my life, and how long will I stand between two opinions? Whether to serve God or to go my own way. Now, that's a pretty heavy start to a message. Welcome to church on a Sunday in August. But you need to know that that is where the text is taking us. It's a warning text. So let's pause and just back up, and then we'll work our way forward. If you're not familiar with the book of Exodus, maybe you've never read it, maybe you've missed a few Sundays, you don't have the backdrop, let me just give you a bit of the context to remind you, the Coles notes, that this story actually begins hundreds of years earlier when God calls a man named Abram, and he tells Abram that I'm going to make you into a great nation, and through this nation, Israel, all nations will be blessed, you're going to have many descendants, and you're going to possess the land upon you currently stand, but not yet. And God tells Abram in advance, he prophesies in advance, that your offspring are going to walk through some incredibly difficult days. In Genesis 15, the Lord says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out. So the Lord predicts. He tells Abraham in advance the captivity is going to happen. The rest of Genesis tells the story of how Abraham's family and descendants, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, his great-grandsons, 12 of them, among one was named Joseph. And the 11 brothers sell Joseph into slavery. And at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is dying. And he says to his brothers, what you intended as evil in my life, selling me as a slave, God has actually used for the salvation of our people because the famine in the land has brought us now for our salvation in Egypt. God hears, God saves, God knows. And so fast forward 400 years and we get to our text. The Hebrew people have increased from that original 75 to nearly 2 million strong. And the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, is fearful that they'll rise up and rebel. So he enslaves them. He makes them as servants of the empires, the builders of the great Egyptian cities and the monuments to Pharaoh's ego. And the people cry out to their God, God, save us. Save us, God. And God hears Exodus 2, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And it is passages like this one that make the book of Exodus so powerful even to this day. Because it is the promise to an oppressed people that there is one who is greater and stronger. There is one who is mighty to save. And he sees and he knows and he moves. Moses then is commissioned to stand before Pharaoh and command him in the name of the Lord, let my people go, but there's a problem. Pharaoh doesn't believe in God. So what do you do with that? Now to chapter 7, the verse 13 verses. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt to bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, and it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So let's make a few quick observations. In that very first verse, what it tells us about Moses' calling and authority, it says, I will make you like God. 
When you're on an assignment for God, you have incredible authority. Moses, I will make you like God. Not I will make you God, but I will make you like God. And you say, in what sense? What an audacious claim for some human to think that they could speak or act like God. But remember, it's not Moses speaking, it's God. And God is saying, I am going to speak through you. Remind yourself, Moses didn't even want this job. Moses resisted this job. He tried to argue his way out of it. But there was also something within Moses that would not allow him to reject the assignment. He had been set apart for this assignment from his very birth. It had been prophesied that God would raise up a deliverer and God had protected him as a young infant, that he was not put to death under the edict where all the Hebrew boys were put to death. And he was trained providentially, not in public school. He was trained in private school in all the wisdom and the knowledge of the Egyptians. Who better to stand before the king of Egypt than one who was from the Ivy League schools of Egypt? And as a younger man, you'll remember, he tried to start the revolution, the rescue, on his own, in his own strength and in his own power. But age 40, he wasn't yet ready. God had some lessons, some humility for Moses to learn, and so he put him on the backside of the desert in Midian, tending sheep. And some of you here today might be in those preparation years because you know that you have a desire to be used of God. You may have some dreams and some thoughts and you maybe have even made some attempts, but so far it's all blown up in your face. And right now you find yourself in an unluxurious world, something like a sheep herder, like a foreigner in a dead-end land having forgotten your earlier dreams. And it's in that humbled estate that God comes to Moses and he says to him, take off your shoes. Take off your shoes because this is holy ground. I got something to say to you and I have a message for you and I have an assignment that I'm going to send you on. I'll make you like God to Pharaoh and when you speak, you're speaking for me. So remind yourself, it's not about you. If he listens to you, it's not about you, it's me he's listening to. And if he doesn't listen to you, it's not about you. He's not rejecting you, he's rejecting me. And there's so many paths that we could go with that particular conversation, but let me make just a few comments and then we'll move on. When God gives you a commission, he will also give you the authority that you need. Jesus sent out his disciples and he said, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, and he gave them the authority to do so. And as we read in the gospels, they did exactly what Jesus empowered them to do. Jesus said to all of us, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is a very famous text in Matthew 16. Most Christians don't know the next verse. The next verse says, and I'm giving you the keys. Jesus said in verse 18, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. And he carries on and he says, and I'm giving you the keys. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Yes, I'm going to build my kingdom. Yes, I'm going to build my church and I'm going to do it through my people and I'm empowering you. I'm giving you the keys. Take it and drive it. When you're called before the rulers of your day, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. 
You are my ambassadors, as though God were imploring through you, be reconciled to Christ. Paul later in his life says to young Timothy, never let anybody look down on you because you're young. Young men and young women in this room, do not let anyone look down on you because you're young physically. He says, make yourself an example in faith, in life, in love, in doctrine, in purity. Show yourself an example unto the truth. In this context, we would say, never let anybody tell you you're too old. You got an 80-year-old and an 83-year-old standing before the king saying, let my people go. If you still have breath in your body, God is not done with you. You're never too old to be used by God. So take courage. But remind yourself from the get-go that even with God's authority, the response is not up to you either. God tells Moses in advance how it's going to end. He won't listen to you. His heart will be hard, and I will lay my hand against him in this nation, and I will get the glory for bringing my people out, and Pharaoh will be humbled. We've got to consider that hard heart that Pharaoh had and how God used it to display his glory. Verse 3 says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And you ask the question, why? Why, God? Why would you harden this leader's heart? And there are other contexts where he takes a pagan leader like Cyrus and he softens his heart and he uses him for his glory. Why harden his heart? And the context tells us to display my glory so that my people would get a glimpse of who I am and how powerful I am. These 400 years of oppression that have beat them down, they need to see a powerful God and how far I will go to rescue and deliver them. And Pharaoh, in his stubbornness, will not stop me from doing what needs to be done, but will only accentuate the glory of the work that I ultimately do. He will be humbled when he bows his knee before me as his judge in order that you will be humbled to bow before me as your savior. I'm going to display my holiness, my justice, my wrath, my judgment, so that you will know that I am God, and I will also display for you my mercy and my grace by making a way for you. Romans 9, a really challenging text in the New Testament, deals with this subject of God's work with Moses and Pharaoh, and he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You see, you listen to the voice of the scriptures and you hear the voice of the hard-hearted woven through these next five chapters. Who is God? I don't believe all that stuff. So you're here to speak to me on behalf of God, are you? Well, prove it to me. Show me a miracle. Do some act of, you know, miraculous signs. And not because Pharaoh really wanted to see God's power or believe, but it was given as a taunt or as a mocking, scoffing voice. The last time I checked, Pharaoh saying, in essence, I was prince of Egypt and I'm calling the shots around here. And in every generation, there are mockers and scoffers. Every generation. Jesus faced them. The most shocking thing of Jesus' words are in this text, Matthew 16, he's dealing with religious people. Scribes and Pharisees who yet were mockers and scoffers and they demanded a sign and Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except 
the sign of Jonah. You see, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that they didn't really want to believe in him. They were just playing games with him. They wanted to see some miracle. And he said, you will get the most powerful miracle, the most powerful sign ever. Just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish, Jesus will spend three days in the belly of the earth and he will walk away from that tomb alive. And even then you won't believe. 2 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 2 rather, says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. It's why it makes sense to us that even in an audience like this, there can be two people sitting side by side hearing the exact same scripture and one's heart is pierced and penetrated and softened with the gospel and the other it runs off the back like water off the duck. Because only the Spirit of God can open the heart to see and hear and understand. And men and women today make the very same reproach towards God. Well, if God is really God, let him show up in power. And then I'd believe. But the truth is that even with miraculous signs, they can be and will be argued away by an unbelieving world. And it's illustrated in this text, and next weekend in particular, that time and time and time and time again, Pharaoh, you want a sign? I'll show it to you. And he hardens his heart. In the context here, the sign, the first miracle, is the staff turning into a serpent. And it's like, well, yeah, my servants can do the same thing. And he calls in the magicians, and we know through the scriptures that Satan and his minions mimic the work of God. When God does something beautiful, Satan can mimic it. And so his magicians turn their staffs into snakes, but Aaron's staff swallows up all of theirs, a sign of victory, and yet Pharaoh's response is still, get out of here. I want nothing to do with your God. Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before the swine. There are some hard hearts that will not be convinced and they will not believe even if the resurrected Christ stands in front of them. But take note that Pharaoh's hard heart happens by God's design. He says, I will harden his heart. He gets the greater glory because now he has the opportunity to over and over and over again strengthen the faith of his people. And even today, God uses evil men for his glory. Uh, this gets a little dangerous when you start speculating about current events, but let me illustrate on a couple fronts what we're seeing and hearing. And leaders from MB Mission have talked to me about this very truth that behind the Syrian borders for decades, there have been unreached people groups that Western missionaries could not get into Syria to reach because it was a closed country. There was no access for outsiders to come in. And so the Christian gospel could not get to these people groups until a dictator takes power. And hundreds of thousands of people of all types and stripes and breeds have been forced out of that nation. And many of them were previously unreached people with the gospel who now in refugee camps or as immigrants to Western countries are coming to faith in Jesus by the thousands. And you say, God in his grace and mercy set up a dictator so that those people could hear the gospel outside of their country. Even ISIS, the horrific, terrible face of ISIS, is turning many Muslims towards Jesus. You see, Muslims are just like Christians. Most of them aren't really Muslims, just like most Christians aren't really Christians. There's two billion, quote-unquote, Christians on the planet, and there's two billion, quote-unquote, Muslims on the planet. Many have not read their holy book. They don't know what it really teaches. 
They just look at radical Islam and they're not comfortable and they say, that's not what represents me. I don't think I agree with that. David Garrison, if you want a great book on this subject, A Wind in the House of Islam, A Wind in the House of Islam, David Garrison, he says that in the last 30 years, by the hundreds of thousands, we are seeing a people movement among Muslim people turning to Christ like never before in the 1,200 years of Muslim history. And why? Because radical ISIS. God is using evil to turn it for good. Second Peter is written to a people who are under oppression. And we are told in the end days of the challenges, the trials, and the difficulties that come before the Lord returns, and a call for God's people to endure with patience, and yet the people are asking, but Lord, Lord, when are you going to step in? When is enough enough? When are you going to judge the earth in righteousness, Lord? And Peter gives them the answer. He says, don't overlook one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, what Peter is saying to us is, I hear your pain, I know that you're suffering. I know the mocking voices in the culture that you live in. And in the context, they're mocking creation. They're mocking the flood. They're mocking the return of Christ. They're mocking it all. And yet Peter says, but be patient because God is patient. He wants as many people as possible to come to repentance. And so he is delaying his return one more day to give us more time to testify his glory. Because if he returned today, all those outside faith in Christ are lost. But tomorrow they might turn. He's patient. He wants all to come to repentance. And his delay gives more opportunity. But make no mistake, and the context is clear, evil will be judged. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about all the evil that you see in the world today. Every person will give an account before the Lord. Every dictator, every tyrant, every evil drug pusher, every sex slave owner will one day stand before a holy God to give an account. The Lord is just and holy and righteous. And the things that drive you insane as a believer drive the Lord crazy too. But one day they will stand before the Lord. And over and over in these next four chapters, you hear God saying, these mighty works are given so that you might know that I'm the Lord. There is none like me in all the earth. So our warning, what do we take from this text? Obviously it is this, do not harden your heart. 1 Corinthians 10, the context there is a recounting of this time, the exodus and the time in the wilderness, the children of Israel and all that happened to them. And it says this specifically, these things took place as examples for us. They were written down, they were recorded so that we in 2017 at Willington Church would be reading this thousand year old text and take heed to it. And it's easy to read the text and to stand in judgment over Pharaoh and to say what a fool he was. How arrogant he was. How great is our God. And yet we need to understand the place that we stand in outside the grace of God. That every one of us in this room, every man and woman and boy and girl in this room, has a heart that is by nature rebellious towards the Lord, a heart that is proud and deceitful and bent on having its own way, a heart that does not respond well to being told that it needs to humble itself before a living God. You see, the Hebrew people had a front row observer seat to the mighty works of God. 
They saw it all, all of the plagues, and yet within a few short chapters, we find them arguing with Moses, arguing with God, hardening their hearts, grumbling against God in his way. They had seen it up close and personal, and yet they still hardened their hearts. And the author of the Hebrews in Hebrews 3 says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart like those who wandered in the wilderness. Don't be like those people. And we must face the reality that left to ourselves, every single one of us in this room would walk away from God. Let me say that again. We must face the reality that left to ourselves, every single person in this room would walk away from God. That's the bent of the human heart. If we did what comes naturally to our human state, we wouldn't seek God. We wouldn't look for him. We wouldn't worship him. We wouldn't give him glory as the king of our lives. Left to ourselves, human nature always comes to the same conclusion. I'll rule my own life. Thank you very much. If you don't believe this is true, if you think I'm a really negative person and this preacher's just having a bad day, just have some children. What is it about that little two-year-old that you know you could boot like this across the room who's barely this high, who will curl up the lip and shake their fist in anger at these giants of parents and say, no, you go, where do these terrorists come from? (laughs) It can't be from my side of the family. Honey, there's something in your family tree. We got to talk about this. Where did this come? We are born this way and we continue along this path until the day comes when God awakens within us a desire to know and follow and surrender to him. And even then we fight the battle. The desires to walk with God and yet the wars within us. And the truth be told, none of us can live up to even our own standards for ourselves, let alone the holy requirements of God over our lives. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God there was one. One who perfectly surrendered his life. In every moment, in every thought, in every action, he readily submitted to the will of the Father. One who never rebelled, one who never shook his fist at God, one who never apathetically or casually or indifferently ignored the Father, one, and his name's Jesus. He never hardened his heart. He always said yes to the will of the Father. He willingly obeyed everything the Lord asked of him, and he took the most difficult assignment ever given to step in as a substitute and to take the punishment for a crime he did not commit. The punishment that was laid on him was our punishment. His chastisement was our chastisement, Isaiah 53 says. To restore beauty and honor where there was only destruction and shame. And to bind up the powers of evil, of Satan, sin, and death. And to vanquish those enemies of our soul and to declare over our lives, this one belongs to me. And to all the powers of hell, you have no place in this person's life. I'm the victor. It's why we need the gospel story every moment of every day of our lives. It is not just about future pie in the sky, heaven when we die. It's about today walking in freedom that God gives us through the gospel. Oh, thank you, God, that there was one who did not harden his heart. 
Thank you for the grace and strength that Jesus provides to walk in that freedom. Thank you that the same Holy Spirit that enabled and empowered Jesus to walk in humility is alive and active and will empower me to step into that same surrender. Oh God, thank you that it's not up to me to keep my heart soft, but that you in your mercy and your grace keep pouring out the oil and the wine of your spirit. You keep calling me to yourself. When I'm rebellious, you offer me grace. When I'm indifferent, you woo me with the voice of love. When I'm arrogant, you don't wipe me out. When I think I've got it all together and I'm doing pretty good, you gently remind me you're really not all that. But more than this, Lord, you remind me of what Jesus did. That Jesus took my sin and my ego and my rebellion and my pride and my indifference and my apathy and he walked up the hill of Calvary and it was all written out on the judgment sheet and he nailed it at the cross and wrote across it in blood, paid in full. But oh God, we can't stop our prayers of rejoicing there. We must turn to prayers of intercession for our world because Lord, our world's a mess and you know it full well. You have every reason to wrap it up today, Lord, to step into time and space with wrath and judgment on all who've rejected your ways, and you would be completely justified, Lord, if today were the day that the clouds and the smoke rolled back and the eastern skies opened up, and like a stallion, a white horse breaking through the eastern skies, Revelation 19, in living color, and we began to sing, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He's loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. Our God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. But God, you're gracious. You're patient. You're merciful because you don't want any to perish. And oh, Father, how our world needs your mercy. How we need your grace. How our nation needs your mercy. We've rebelled against you and we've called evil good and good evil. We have mocked the teachings and ways of a holy God. We have raised a stiff neck against you and told you to leave us alone. Oh God, have mercy. God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on our leaders. Awaken them and stir them and drive them to their knees, Lord. Lord, have mercy on our families, on our marriages, on husbands and wives who have not yet surrendered to you. Oh, God, have mercy on our children, children who are still running from you and not to you. Oh, God, have mercy. Awaken them. Break them. Show yourself powerful and holy and beautiful and just. For, Lord, we stand in awe of your judgment, your holiness, and your power. And we know that with great might and power you can and you will display your wonders. We know that to stand in the presence of a holy God is impossible except for the grace of God. And Lord, we fear the judgment that our world deserves. And Father, we cry for men and women in this room today who don't even know that they're standing in the way of your wrath. Men and women who are hell-bent against you and have no clue what's coming their way. Oh, God, have mercy. God, save us from ourselves. So as we wrap it up, let me ask you some questions. Is it possible that you're sitting in the seat of Pharaoh? Has God been trying to get your attention? 
Have you been guilty of rejecting the voice of the Lord? Have you perhaps been a mocker, a scoffer? Have you shook your fist at God or have you simply been indifferent and bored, apathetic? The text would cry to us, don't let your heart be hardened. You see, a holy God cannot endure sin forever. Yes, he's patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And so he woos us and he waits. But there is a line between the mercy of God and the wrath of God. And at some point that line is crossed and there's no return. You see, the mercy and the grace of God is here for every single one of us today. But it is a limited time offer. God will not tarry forever. In the first coming, he came humbly on the back of a donkey, and in the second, he comes as a warrior to judge the nations. Thank God there was a time and place when the mercy of God and the wrath of God have already met. The cross of Christ. There in that sacrifice, we see fully the display of God's mercy and his holiness. That as a holy God, he can't stand in the presence of sin and rebellion. He can't violate his own character or he wouldn't be holy and just. So sin had to be paid for and the debt had to be forgiven and the shame of our rebellion. And it all comes to a culmination when Jesus steps to the plate to willingly absorb the wrath of a holy God. But mercy meets us in that moment as well as Jesus opens his hands and he looks towards us with eyes of love and saying to every single one of us, I did this for you. I did this on your behalf. Simply say yes, soften your heart, humble your pride, come home, child. Come home, child. Come home. That sacrifice will not be forced on anyone. It must be a willing bending of the knee. And so the question that we must all ask is this, have I? Will I? Humble myself before a holy God. Have I turned from my pride and my ego and allowed the Lord of the universe to pay my debt? And I would just remind you that this invitation is not from a preacher. It is not from Moses. It is not from one of your pastors and certainly not from this guest speaker. This invitation is from God himself who says, would you be reconciled to me? So let's stand together. I'd like to pray with you and for you. And I want to pray for two groups of people in particular. And I know that in a congregation this size, without even knowing you, that there are men and women who've been doing some business with God and God has been calling you and he's been asking you to make some kind of a decision. And the Holy Spirit's smarter than I am. He can apply it exactly to what you know is going on in your heart. And I would simply say to you, do not pass this opportunity to say yes to the Lord. And as simply as that, opening your hands and saying yes, Lord, to your will and your ways for my life. Secondly, I want to pray for many of you who have people in your lives that you are praying for that are just like these, the hard-hearted. They may be your friends, they may be your family members, it may be your spouse, it may be some of your children, it may be co-workers, and you are just frustrated because you don't know what is it going to take, Lord, to soften these hearts. And I want to pray for those people together with you. So let's pray. Lord Jesus. I pray for men and women in this room who right now in this moment need to simply say, yes, Lord. And I pray that by your spirit that you would bring them to that point they are willing to bow their ego before you. Open their hands and say, Lord, I finally get it. I'm willing to accept the incredible gift that you gave me of life through Jesus Christ. 
I'm willing to admit that I am not doing a good job as the king of my own life. And I willingly surrender to you as my Savior and my Lord. And I ask you to take a place in my life as the ruler and the reign over my life in every way, shape, and form. For those, Lord, who for the very first time are saying yes to you and for others who for the hundredth time are recommitting their life again as we do every day, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And Father, I pray for all of us in this room because every single one of us have friends and family members, maybe co-workers, neighbors. We love them, Lord, and we wonder what is it going to take for their hearts to turn towards you. And in many days, we're frustrated. Why does it seem like so little movement is happening? God, would you be gracious to these people? You have tarried. You've not returned yet. There's a reason. You want as many as possible to come to repentance. Oh, God, we cry out for our nation. We cry out for your church in our nation. Would you renew us? Would you revive us? Would you put us on our knees? And Lord, would you use us as agents of reconciliation? And Lord, would you move in the hearts and lives of our spouses, of our children, of our extended family, of our friends, of our neighbors, people that right now are so far from God and we wonder, is there any hope whatsoever? Lord, I pray even this week that we will hear dozens and dozens of stories of conversations that began because your spirit has begun to soften hard hearts. Lord, we cry out for our city, we cry out for our families, we cry out for our nation. Lord, have mercy, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.